Welcome back to the LFDC podcast. My name is Pastor Jesse. This week we continue in Ephesians in chapter 5. We hope you're blessed. It is interesting being back up here because I had a couple weeks sabbatical in which uh, we had Dave Williams last week and we had um, our Agape service the week before that in which we heard from Rachel. And so that was good. And so... Uh, interesting to get back, and, and even three weeks ago, I didn't talk on Ephesians. We spoke on Romans chapter 5 and 6, in which we were uh, residents of a graveyard. Unfortunately, for some reason, our audio device, I record, and I get home, and then I cannot find the recording. So if you are someone who likes a podcast, I apologize. I have not been able to get a podcast up in a few weeks, because the audio is not polling correctly, and I don't know why, so we'll try that again. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, that doesn't work. Well, just uh, give me a cup of water then, just uh, from the sink out there. <laughs> yeah, it's frozen. <laughs> I'm frozen water. I can't drink that, Elijah. Um, let's, I'm, I'm going to ask you guys to do something a little different today, just because I do feel like we're just so small today, and that's, that's actually a good thing. I like that. Uh, will you guys try to sit in one of these nine seats, like one of these blocks. Like Lynn and Sonia could probably support her. Cece, you're off the hook because of Luke. Um, got some seats no here. Fair. Josiah might have to share with his family. He's like, no. I just, I, I, don't, I don't know. Something about being a little closer and more intimate. Ian and Bella sit up here, maybe. Keep an eye on Ian. I got your back, Brian. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Oh, believe me, I know everything. You know all. Good, good. Gabriel's too kind. He left his, his Baptist spot in the back, back row Baptist, and moved forward. Grandma didn't know. <laughs> That's what I get to look at anytime I talk about him. It. It's, it's really hard to look at him. <laughs> Grandma had that same face when you told her. Yeah, it's okay. Some people, some people are, you know, we're good. It just feels a little more homey now. Feels a little more close and intimate, which I like. A um, couple things I wanted to say, though. I really, really enjoy uh, Dick Williams' ministry. He is just, he's a blessing to me. He's a blessing to, hopefully, you guys. Hopefully, we did take 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, in which it says, Do not despise prophecy, but test all things and cling to what is good. I hope that you guys were able to pray through that, speak speak to some people close to you, and, and talk about those prophetic words. You know, uh, Corbin... Corbin came to me, thank you, Elijah. Corbin came to me and he said, you know, uh, just the night before, I was having a conversation with some old friends, Christian friends, in which they said, you know, you are in the valley of the shadow of death right now, but that is not your destination. You are not going to it. You are going through it. And then Dick Williams gave him essentially the same word on Sunday in which he said, this is not your destination. You're not staying in this valley. You're going through it. And so for him, it blew his mind a little bit. And that's what I mean when I say a prophetic word should blow your mind to some extent. It should really minister to your heart. You, you, you should align with it pretty quickly. Even with me, when he said, do the work of an evangelist on Saturday night about Timothy, 1 Timothy, I was literally meditating on that scripture the day before, thinking about it, thinking, how can I be more as an evangelist, as Paul commissions Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, how can I be like that? And I was actually asking the Lord to start highlighting people to me that I may witness to. And it takes a lot of courage to just start talking to people about the gospel of Christ 
outside of church and just at Walmart or at the store or whatever. But I want that, and it's really not in my nature. Um, I know I'm pretty outgoing and I can talk a lot, um, but I'm not like Brian, okay? Like, I'm not <laughs> just going to talk to a stranger next to me in line. I'm not going to just make friends with the, the waiter or waitress, right? That's Brian. And, uh, <laughs> and that's just not really me. So when he said that, it just was confirmation that I am I'm really focusing on the right things in that I want to begin doing the work of an evangelist. Um, Jonathan Edwards, another person I've been studying a little bit, I, I finished a book by John Piper called The Supremacy of God in Preaching, in which he talks a lot about Jonathan Edwards as kind of his uh, past penmate. And I learned a lot about Jonathan Edwards, and when he first became a pastor of his uncle's church, um, he, he devoted himself to studying 13 hours per day. Can you believe that? 13 hours per day. Uh, he would go into a study early in the morning, stay in there. He would take a small lunch in the garden to meditate on what he had been learning, to pray, um, and to walk around and really try to absorb what he's been studying, right? Because you can't just study, study, study. Sometimes you just got to take a break and really just process it, think about it, meditate on it. That's a lot of my life right now is when I talk about meditating on scriptures, that's what I do. I'm processing and eating and digesting as much as I can. And, so he would, and then he would return back to his study, and he would come out at 5 p.m., to have dinner with his wife and kids for one hour, and he'd go back to his study till about nine, and then he'd go to bed. That was his life. In which he, he actually refused to counsel many uh, people. That wasn't really, he, he told his church and he told the elders with him that I can best serve this church by knowing the Bible. And that was his passion. He actually wept when they chose him to be the president or like a, a leader of this university. Um, later on in his life because he, he loved studying the Word of God so much and he knew that taking in on this role he wouldn't be able to study as much as he wanted. And so he actually wept and said, I will submit to your decision because it was a Christian university. He said, because I know I'm a good candidate and it might be the Lord's will for me, I don't know. But he actually wept because he was so brokenhearted they gave him this position because his heart's desire was to study and study and study. And I, I found that so impressive because um, I, I just slowly been learning that that is something that I am so drawn to. And it makes, it makes a lot of sense because we've got our elders and we're trying to, you know, sharpen each other out and figure things out. And, you know, you've got Rachel who loves to pray and to uh, get into worship and loves to, I mean, she loves to study too, don't get me wrong. Uh, and she loves to do a lot of different things that, I, that I'm gifted in. Like, I'm not really prophetically gifted. Um, really, at all. <laughs> I mean, I pray for it, and I ask God, hey, if you want to use me in a prophetic way, I'm, I'm ready. Um, but most of my words usually just, you know, kind of are just like, well, this, this scripture, I was reminded of the scripture to give to you, and that, to me, is a prophecy, but maybe not in the way people like. And Dick Williams, afterward, he came to me, and <laughs> he said something, and uh, I would have never thought I was this guy, but I was like, you know, you're actually not wrong, <laughs> in which he said, you know, you're, you're the type that you probably enjoy preparing your sermon more than you enjoy giving your sermon. And I laughed and I said, yeah, that's, that's the path I'm headed down. Um, it's, you know, it's late on Saturdays that I usually finally prep it, prep it. And, uh, and I just, I love it. I love the, I love the process of prepping the sermon. And, uh, and so hopefully you were blessed by his ministry. I made a strong point, strong emphasis to say this is what I believe New Covenant prophecy really in a healthy environment looks like. It's for the upbuilding of a local church. 
for edification, exhortation, and consolation. And I do believe he does a really good job of that. But that doesn't mean just because he's prophetically gifted, we take every single thing, as he says, as the infallible word of God. It's not the infallible word of God. It's a fallible prophetic word in which he believes God is speaking through him to give to you. So that doesn't always mean it's perfect or that it's on or that it's right for the season. Right? And so we have to take that and test it and know this was good or that one doesn't quite align with where I feel I'm headed right now. But I'll keep that in the back of my mind. Right? And so I say all these things to say I really um, I enjoyed some time off in, in a sense. And I enjoyed uh, Dick Williams' ministry. But we're excited to get back into Ephesians chapter 5. Teenagers, what is in Ephesians chapter 5? You guys know? Just high knows. Mm. We're not going to get into it today, but I've heard a rumor that the teenagers are excited for the latter portion of Ephesians chapter 5, in which we discuss Wait, is marriage. Yeah. <laughs> but we're not talking about that today. Sorry to keep your hopes up. So we're saying that... Um, there was one brief thing I did want to mention to you before we began in Ephesians chapter 5 as well, on top of those things. Um, the most transforming thing that you can do in your life is to allow the Holy Spirit to take a permanent residing seat upon your mind. And what I mean by this is picture your mind as a throne in which the Holy Spirit gets to sit. The most powerful thing uh, that I started doing a few years ago was I stopped, and you don't have to do this, it's a mental game for me at least, is I tried to stop saying amen. Because to me, amen meant goodbye, talk to you later, catch you next time. Right? And so I tried to stop saying amen. I tried to start placing this emphasis and this focus on, okay, like, I'm praying these things, and now the conversation isn't over. You're with me wherever I go, whenever I go, however I go. And, and one of the best things you can do in prayer, um, and I'm not negating the power of spending hours in prayer, those who tarry, those who linger, those who spend hours upon hours upon hours in prayer. But the reality is many people in this room cannot devote four or five hours to prayer or even two hours to prayer. I mean, you probably can, but we don't want to get legalistic and say every person has to spend two hours of prayer or if not, you're a hypocrite, right? That's not the purpose of Christian living. The purpose of Christian living is to, to what? Pray without ceasing. Christians had jobs. <laughs> Christians had lives. Christians had to uh, be married. Christians had to have kids. Christians had things going on. And all of us are Christians in which we have things. And so you feel guilty because I don't pray enough in a day. I don't pray for an hour like that holy person over there. I don't pray enough like that person over there. That's not the point. The scriptures say to pray without ceasing. And so the way to do that is to allow the Holy Spirit, who is a person, not a feeling, not an experience, a person, to reside upon your mind in which everything that passes through your mind is submitted to the Spirit. Your emotions, I take my emotions, and I, I heard this on a podcast and I love it, anytime I, I start experiencing emotions, it's so hard, guys. It's so hard, because emotions are hard. <laughs> right? But anytime I start feeling emotions that I know are not emotions I should be having, I try to pray. I'm not talking about going into a corner of a room and praying on your knees. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about submit your mind. Realize that your mind, the Holy Spirit, is inside of you, and you can pray internally. Okay? 
<laughs> I told you guys my wife would be like, what are you thinking about? I'm like, just meditating on scripture. <laughs> I haven't been as loopy lately, but uh, that's actually probably a bad thing. <laughs> I'm more present, which means the Holy Spirit's maybe, maybe I'm not praying as much as I should be. But that is my recommendation to you. You all have jobs. The Holy Spirit's with you. You all have families. The Holy Spirit's with you. You all have chores. You all have things you need to do. You have yard work. You have housework. It's not about spending five hours in prayer, and because you don't spend five hours in prayer, you're not as holy. It's about submitting your mind to the Holy Spirit and living this Christian life with the knowledge and the awareness that your life is now His. And so every emotion, every feeling, everything you say, everything you do, you start to process in such a way that you're praying to the Holy Spirit as you do things. And before you know it, you're doing dishes and you're having a conversation with God in your head. And before you know it, you're mowing the lawn and you're worshiping, having a conversation with God in your head. And before you know it, you're talking to your wife, and you're actually, while you're talking to your wife, and this is probably a bad recommendation, but this happened to me, you start thinking about this certain thing, and you start to meditate and try to push it into your heart. To pray without ceasing is to realize and acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is sealed to your very being, and thus everything you do is sacred. Everything you touch is sacrament. Everything and anything you are aware of becomes the Holy Spirit is with you. It's not like you just leave the Holy Spirit at the door while you go and do your sin. Right? That's not what happens. That's why we call we are called the covenant eyes. Right, teenagers? We have to understand you, you go in, into your dark room, you flip on the switch to pornography. I'm just gonna call it what it is. It's everywhere in our culture. Kids buy seven have experienced that nowadays. The Holy Spirit's with you. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit's with you. You're putting the Holy Spirit through that. And that's why sexual morality is a big no-no. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, due to time, I, I do have a shorter sermon. I have way less slides than I normally have. So that is a good thing in this. So now I'm going to start the sermon. But I really wanted to talk about praying without ceasing and allowing the Spirit to take up permanent residence in your mind. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, we remember, uh, as a reminder, it's been almost a month since we were in Ephesians, so we want to remind ourselves, Ephesians is doctrines and music, it is a, uh, a letter written by Paul to the church of Ephesus, but remember that too, it didn't actually say to Ephesus, it's just assumed, um, and I think they got things right, but Ephesus was the first church in which it was written to, but it was meant to be spread about to all of the churches, in which... This church didn't have a lot of issues, like Corinthians, those longer books in which they were abusing and misusing their knowledge and their gifts and their tongues and their prophecies, right? They were abusing and misusing those things, so Paul had to address those things. But in Ephesus, they weren't really abusing or misusing anything. And so it's this wonderful epistle in which Christ, or not Christ, but Paul, and Christ through Paul, gets to write and say, here's what I would like for you to know. Rather than, here's your issues, I need you to deal with this. I need you to stop doing this. I need you to know this. Rather, this, this letter is written in a way that is saying, here's what I want you to know. And the reason people had a strong, uh, or an emphasis on trying not to give Paul credit, and maybe just one of his uh, disciples credit, is because it, it seems to have taken more time. It's more poetic in nature. It's, it's a little more thought out than Paul's normal writing. Well, think about that. To Corinthians, Paul's like, what are they doing? What? 
I need to write a letter right now, as quick as I can, and get it to them. Phoebe, go. Right? That's who sent it. But Ephesus is saying, wow, they're doing a good job. I'm, I'm going to write them slowly, patiently, methodically. I really want them to know these things. And so we, we keep that in mind. And so chapter 1 through 3 is about the gospel message, the beauty of the gospel message. We were chosen in him. And thus, because we now have this divine understanding of the gospel of Christ, and even then he petitions and saying, I'm praying that more of you in this church will continue or to come to the knowledge of the fullness of Christ, right? There are people that are in church that don't know the counsel of the gospel message. And so if 1 through 3 is the gospel, and 4 through 6 is the response to the gospel message. If you get these two things twisted, I do want to mention this. If you get these two things twisted, that becomes moralism or legalism in which you are not saved. If you follow the code of conduct written in the Word of God, but you don't really fully understand the gospel, moralism doesn't get you to heaven. Right? And that's why you also have to be careful. I know I gave that sermon uh, the last days in which we talked about don't look at the gifts someone has, look at their fruit. But it really does go deeper than that. And the reason being is because, yeah, absolutely. You, you can't look at someone, oh, you speak in tongues, but you're rude, right? I don't care that you speak in tongues, you're rude, right? Mike Todd had a sermon on that, and I actually shared it on Instagram. Um, but he essentially said, he's like, I know more mean tongue speakers than just normal Christians that can't speak in tongues. And they're, they're kind and they're caring, and they're loving, and they're compassionate, and they love the Word of God, and they love to tell people about Christ. Then you meet a tongue speaker, and they're all prideful and puffed up, and they're rude to everyone. Mm. It's not about how gifted you are. I don't care about that. I care about what do you show in your fruits. And if you're gifted on top of that, you need to serve the church. I use that word on purpose, serve the church. That is the call of a gifted person is to serve the church, which means to serve people, to serve Christians. You are gifted with the purpose of serving. That's, that's the reason we're gifted. Right? I do believe that I, I've been gifted to teach. That's, that I'm just set on that now. I, I'm passionate about it. I love it. I love learning. I do believe that's my call, my purpose, especially as an elder, is, is to find sound doctrine and to teach it. That's my, you know, I'm not prophetically gifted as Rachel, as we talked about. But we use these giftings now not to put ourselves in a position in which we, oh, I'm this way, so you have to look at me this way. No, I'm, I'm gifted in this way so I can serve you. So I can steward the word of God with excellence and so I can build you up. It's not to build myself up. That's not the point of a gift. The gift is to build up others. Right? And so if you get these things twisted, if you get into moralism and legalism and you follow the law and you look like a good person, yet you don't understand the gospel, then you are not truly saved. You can't follow the code of conduct of the gospel message and not know the gospel message because that's moralism, right? And that's why fruit of the Spirit is still not even enough, right? And so you look at people like the Roman Catholics. They have good fruit. Some of them are kind. Some of them are caring. They're more pro-life than any evangelical, probably. We talked about that. They refuse to take contraceptives. We talked about contraceptives because they realize that they kill babies. Right? Somebody put on my Instagram, I did a harsh, harsh realities or you know, truths that nobody wants to talk about. Somebody su submitted, like, contraceptives kill more babies than abortion. And I said, this is true, but I don't want to share it because I'm too brokenhearted about it. It's true. It, it, it's a sad reality that con contraceptives kill more babies than abortions. That's very likely true. And it breaks my heart. 
And so the Roman Catholics, they display fruit of the Spirit. LDS, they display fruit of the Spirit probably better than most Christians, right? So then, you can't just take the fruit in and of itself and say, oh, well, you're a, you're a morally good person, so you're going to heaven. You can't do that. So what do you look at? What's the difference between Catholics? What's the difference between the LDS religion? It's their doctrine. It's their teaching. It's the gospel message. If you mess up the gospel, if you mess up your doctrine, if you mess up the word of God, then everything you're doing, whether morally good or not, is in vain. That is true. Right? So hopefully you're understanding that we have to understand the gospel. And that's why Paul says, here is the gospel. And I'm praying for more of you to come to this divine understanding, Amen. this divine realization of the true truth about Christ, his love for you, and so you respond in this way. If you live in a certain way, but yet you don't fully understand the gospel message, you're missing it. Right? But for me to say, get up here and, and preach Christ is all you need, and now go live however you want, that's also missing it. Because if you've truly caught the gospel of Christ, I will tell you, go live however you want, because the gospel of Christ, it brings sinners to salvation, you will end up in heaven. That's true. But if I get up and tell you that, and then you say, oh sure, I want to do that, then you don't really know the gospel of Christ. And for me to get up here and say that would also probably be wrong, because then I'm leading you into a place in which you don't understand the gospel of Christ. And so it's important to understand the gospel of Christ, and thus our response to that. But if you still don't fully understand the gospel of Christ, don't try to fake it. Don't fake it until you make it. Really focus on the gospel. Um, so chapter 4, we talked about unity, the purpose of giftings in order to build up the church, and then pursuing holiness. Chapter 5, we continue. And I promise we're going to get through this pretty quick. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. First thing I want to point out is the imitators. Um, how do you know, as a beloved child... Luke, he learns how to do his things that he does based on imitation, right? He's got a, he's got a really cute, he, he imitates noises we'll make, which I like, you know? We could do the, and he'll imitate that. His new one that I just love is the, like a breath out, like, he imitates that right now. So if I do that, he'll start doing that. We can do it back and forth, right? Um, he claps, right? Cece kind of taught him clapping, essentially, because he loves the dogs. He loves playing with the dogs. So she was throwing the frisbees, and every time he caught it, she'd be like, oh, good job. Yay, good job, dogs. And then he started doing it, because he loved it. He's like, yeah. So now if you say good job, he'll sometimes just start clapping. <laughs> he doesn't know what he's clapping for. He just knows, good job, somewhere. Right? They imitate. Children imitate the people in which they're around. So it becomes very easy to imitate the world when you're just hanging out with the world all the time. It becomes very easy to imitate your coworkers when that's all you're around. It becomes very easy to imitate those people in which reside in your life. And so that's why the Holy Spirit and the understanding of the biblical gospel are why we are to imitate God. That is who we are to imitate. And we're going to get into this a little bit deeper, but imitation, um, most of us are really bad at. Right? Almost every person in this room is probably pretty bad at imitating God. Um, this word beloved, I, I think just like this. It, it's the word agapetos. Uh, so agape, and then as tos. Uh, and, and this is actually literally uh, 
an experience of truth in which you know you are loved. So in order to truly, fully, in my opinion, imitate God in his love, you must fully, truly understand his love. We've all experienced God's love and understand God's love to some capacity, but we all know we can experience it and know it to a deeper, deeper, deeper level. And so thus we never stop pursuing the understanding of God's love because in return, we can thus begin to love more and more and more. The point of knowing God's love isn't just to dwell in God's love and stay in there forever. Though it's a beautiful thing and though I love that and though I want to, the purpose in knowing God's love is so that I can thus reciprocate it and imitate it as best as I can. Walk. We see this word all the time <laughs> in verse 2. And walk in love. Right? Walk is that to lifestyle. That's what it means, to live. In NIV, you probably will see the word live there. Live as Christ. Because that's what it means. And I want to remind you, one of the, the favorite examples I've seen, and it was from Andrew Wilson, in which he said, when you're marching, you can't just look to the person to your left or your right to know how to, to, to walk. You look into the, the fur, furthest, most front right person, and he said, that's the Holy Spirit. You're following the walk of the Holy Spirit in which he's leading you. If you look to the left and you see, oh, well, they watch more TV than me, and you look to the right and you say, well, they pray for five hours a day, you put yourself in the middle because you say, well, I'm better than this person, and I feel crappy when I look at that person. <laughs> right? We can't look at each other to determine our walk. Right. We, we look at each other to encourage each other. Yeah, maybe for some accountability, saying, hey, I know that the Holy Spirit is convicting me in this area to get out of this. Will you help me and keep me accountable? Yeah. Yeah. Right? The one thing we all look to when we keep each other accountable is the Word of God. And that's why if you watch the video in which I need all of you that consider living faith your church to watch, I said I have zero authority. Zero. None. I have no authority. The Word of God has all authority over you and over me. That's right. And so if I pull you to the side and say, hey, you know what? The Word of God in this section says not to do this, mm -hmm. and you're doing this, I have every single right to do that. But if I come to you and say, Darrell, you know, the beard's got to go. Yeah. It's just got to go. It's causing too many women in this church to lust. <laughs> the church is like, who? I'm beating them up. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's not in the Bible. I can't come to you with stuff that's not in the Bible. Right? I'm going to come to you with the Word of God. And, and, and I promise you, if I'm going to come to you, it's going to be something I've prayed through. And I've really tried to search at all the angles because... Everyone can twist the word to mean whatever they want it to mean. So I can pull a verse out of context and say, yeah, you've got to do this. Right? You guys can come at me. First Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 10, says men are not permitted to have long hair. Right? You guys come at me, Mike, and say, hey, you two are in sin. Cut your hair off. <laughs> right? And I can come at you with First Timothy and say, hey, wait a minute. You're not wearing head coverings. You're in sin. Put your head coverings on. Stop wearing your jewelry. Right? That's why we have to look at context, we have to look at culture, we have to understand what transcends culture, what, what is it actually meaning, what is the message behind this, right? When we look at head coverings, it's not about the fact that they're wearing head coverings, it's that in this culture, if you were a head covering, that meant you were married, and that you were, you were submitted to a husband, and that you were, you were taken, and that you were, um, right? But if you let your hair down and wore jewelry, that usually meant you were a prostitute, right? But you've got churches today that require head coverings. I'm just going to say, if you're married, you probably should wear a ring. Okay, That would be kind of a similar equivalent today. If I got up here and preached with no ring all the time, 
my wife might get mad at me. She might, hey, you're giving the wrong impression. People might think you're single. Right? And people take things out of context the other way, because they'll even say, hey, well, an elder has to be married to one wife. So if I'm not married, I can't be a pastor. And that's not true either, because Paul says later on that he wishes people would be like him. Paul wasn't married. Paul was single. So how on earth was Paul an apostle who wrote 60% of the New Testament, yet he didn't have a wife? I've seen people that say that. I can't be a pastor because I don't have a wife. What? That's not what, that's not the, what, that's not what we're saying here. It's just saying... If you are married, you better not have multiple of them. Right? That's why we can look at Joseph Smith and say, no, no, no. New Testament, new, new, new rules here for you. You better not have multiple wives. Once you have multiple wives, we can't trust you. We have to know our word. We have to understand it in context, in culture, and what it means today. Right? We talk, we talk about these things. Letting your hair down and putting on fine jewelry was more than just saying I'm a prostitute, because not all of them were prostitutes, but it was kind of saying I'm available. Yeah. I'm a little immodest. I'm a little risque. Right? <laughs> and so when we, when we translate in that into today's culture, we have to look at that and say, okay, it's saying be modest. If you're married, act married. Put on your ring and act married. Yeah. And if you're single, still be modest. Don't look like all the hoodlums out in the world. Don't look sexually immoral. Don't look like you're available for a fun night on Friday. <laughs> right? That's, that's, what, that's what we're saying. That's, we take that to America, and that's, that's the equivalent. Right? And so we walk in step with the Word of God and with Spirit. Um, Romans 12.1, I do want to point this out, though, uh, that as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, that was as a fragrant, fragrant aroma. And we know aroma uh, in the Old Testament, like with the Old Covenant, and they sacrificed the animals and the incense, and it was a sacrifice. It was well-pleasing to God. Seems like child abuse to some. Sent the son to die on the cross, and it was a pleasant aroma. Isn't that crazy to think about? That Christ took on God's wrath, and even submitted himself to the Father's will. You know, he says, God, if it may be your will, may this cup pass over from me. But at the end of the day, like, not my will be done, but yours. That's my question in prayer, is what are you praying are you, are you decreeing your will be done? Or are you saying, here, here, God, here's my will, but at the end of the day, not my will, but your will be done. Right? Most, if you study the Puritans, most of them meditate and try to listen more than they try to talk. And that's my prayer more and more, is I'm really trying to place this emphasis on meditating on Scripture and realizing truths and really trying to just focus in on, God, what is your will in this situation? What does your Scripture say about this type of situation? How can I be more aligned with your will? And that's the point of prayer. The purpose of prayer is to align yourself with the will of the Father. Yeah. It's not to get God to align with your wills. <laughs> right? That's not, that's not the purpose of prayer. And so we look at this. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Uh, Romans 12.1, I quote this quite a bit, but it says, I appeal to you, I beseech you, therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual act of worship. It's the same thing Christ did. He said, here is my body, your will be done. That is worship. It's an action. It's choosing to say, here is my flesh and bone, have your way. How can I serve you? That is worship. It's not experiencing some good feelings on a Sunday morning with a, with a drummer and a singer. Right? We can get into the songs and get into praising God and glorifying God, but worship is an action in which how you live. 
It's submitting yourself to his will. Verse 3, but sexually, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Once again, it's not named among yeah, Ephesians. It's not named among them because, uh, like I said, this is what I want you to know. He's not dealing with any issues head on, but he's saying, I don't want these things to even be named among you. Sexual immorality. People, people talk about Christ like he didn't talk about uh, being gay because he, he never talked about homosexuality. But he, text, he talked about sexual immorality all of the time. And you know what sexual immorality is? It's anything that isn't sanctioned between a man and a woman in marriage. Everything else is sexually immoral. Christ doesn't need to say man with man. He said anything that's sexually immoral. I don't care if it's man with woman. If it's premarital, it's sexually immoral. Man with man, woman with woman, it doesn't matter. It's all sexually immoral. And so Paul is saying, sexual immorality, it shouldn't even be named among you. I shouldn't even hear about who, who does what with who. Right? First Corinthians has a chapter in which they talk about this man who, if you guys know, he, he, he essentially slept with his mother-in-law, or his stepmom, right? His father's wife. He's sleeping around with her. And, he, and Paul's like, get him out of your church. Get him out. Kick him out. Right? And that's, that's the language you see in the New Testament. It says, don't associate with people that are like the world. Don't have them in your church. That's good. Right? And so it says, I don't want impurity. I don't want sexual morality. I don't want anyone who's greedy, covetousness, right? Must not be even named among you. You're preaching good. As is proper among the saints. So what is proper? Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Uh-oh. Attend a youth event. That might, <laughs> might come out. Ready? Uh-oh. Which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. One thing that I really like to, to look at here in this moment is instead let there be thanksgiving. And I'm, I'm going to focus on this for a moment here. Uh, I pulled out a few, few cross-reference verses, and I'm going to quote C.H. Spurgeon a few times because to me, gratefulness and thanksgiving is the, the best way to fix your mindset. Is to find a way to be grateful in all situations. It's hard. It's very hard. But he says, rather than being sexually immoral, rather than being... Filthy, rather than letting foolish talk or crude joking, which are totally out of place in a Christian life, rather than let those things be what you're about, let you be about being a grateful person. You know? Godliness and contentment is a great game. Psalm 100, verses 4 through 5. Enter into his gates of thanksgiving and his courts of praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. Guess what? You know the Lord, and He is good, and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. You know, people, people challenge in, in TULIP, right, the, the acronym for Calvinism, and the last one being perseverance of the saints. But they don't say it's because a good Christian perseveres. It's because, if you, if you look into Spurgeon enough, a true saint perseveres, because God perseveres in his faithfulness. There's more grace than there is sin. There's more mercy than there is bad days. There's more faithfulness on God's part than on our part. It's not about what man can accomplish and he perseveres to the end. It's because God perseveres to the end. And it says his faithfulness continues through all generations. Philippians um, 4, 6-7, through 7, Do not be anxious about anything. Now that's hard in and of itself. 
But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So I'm not saying don't request things to God. My, my, my saying that I always tell the young adults, and uh, I think I've said it from the pulpit before too, is petition and listen. Petition and listen to prayer. Say, I'm petitioning. This is, this is what I want. This is what I think is good. And listen. You don't hear anything? Petition and listen. Right. Now, I'm not saying go name and claim it, blab it and grab it, decree it, declare it. Right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying petition and listen. Present your request to God and the peace of God which, which transcends all understanding. The peace of God, which I love that. Transcends all understanding. It doesn't even make sense. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we, in, church, in, in Sunday school with the adults, we talked about, uh, I forget her name, but the martyr who, was a, who became a, a servant to the church. Uh, she was widowed, and the church chose to support her and her seven children because she gave herself up to serve the church. She served them naturally. She essentially became a deacon. And the church said, we'll provide for you and your seven kids if you don't get married, essentially. Like, stay single, stay till then. And people said, hey, she looks like a really good Christian. We should accuse her of being a Christian. They accused her of being a Christian. She didn't recant. They said, hey, we'll bribe you. We'll pay for you. We'll take care of your kids. We'll take care of your family. Just recant Jesus Christ. The kids haven't heard this story. And she said, I can't. I can't. Jesus is too good to me. I can't reject him. And they said, okay, well, if you don't, if you don't do this, we're going to kill your seven kids. You better recant Jesus Christ. She said, I can't. And she told her seven kids before they killed her, remain strong in Christ. And they killed her. And then they went to each of the seven kids, and they asked the seven kids to recant Jesus Christ. These are little kids, Zeke, Kalel age, right? They asked them to recant Jesus Christ, and none of them did. So they burned all seven kids at different places in the city as to set them as an example. Are you kidding me? You want a Lamborghini, right? Get out of here. <laughs> Colossians 2, 6-7, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Hebrews 13, 15-16, this is probably my favorite one, the last one I have. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Praise. What we do here is glorify God and thank God for who He is, what He has done. We're not petitioning for more things. The fruit of lips that openly profess his name and do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Spurgeon has three quotes I want to reference here. All of these are C.H. Spurgeon. It is not how much we have, but how much we enjoy that makes us happy. It's not about how much you have that makes you happy. It's how much you choose to enjoy. Right? Another quote by him, if we complain less, and praise more, we should be happier, and God would be more glorified. I didn't, I didn't put this in my note, but uh, John Piper, there, there's a term called Christ, Christian hedonism. Hedonism is essentially pursuing pleasure, right? So hedonism in and of itself is, is culturally, it's not Christian. Right? It's pursuing pleasure for your own gain, for, for fun, for good, right? But Christian hedonism is this principle that my pleasure is Christ. And so I am incredibly well pleased because I, I'm in Christ and there's nothing better for me. And Christian hedonists would be uh, Jonathan Edwards, Sam Storms, John Piper. Those are best examples for that. And, uh, and John Piper has a quote, and this is incredibly scriptural. 
But he says, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so Spurgeon says essentially the same thing. He says, if we complain less and praise more, we would be happier and God would be more glorified. And the last one that I think is just, it's convicting and I think about it a lot. He said, I don't think Christians realize how terrible of a sin it is to complain. We are meant to be people who are grateful and thankful. The fact that we know God alone is worthy of our praise for the rest of our days. The fact that we've inherited eternal life, that we're not damned, that alone is worthy of praise. So for us to get up and complain, my goodness, do you not realize you have the most important thing in all of humanity? You know Christ. That's good. Verse 5, we're we're almost here. For you may be sure, uh, this word sure, is uh, maybe sure, I should say, it's more more of a coined term, is the word ginosko, which means to know firsthand. So you know firsthand of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, uh, in Latin, get this, you guys, in Latin, sexually immoral means, it's derived from the word pornos, which is where we get our word porn, in pornography, okay? Right, so this word in here, it's, it's, it's porn, okay? Sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, covetous um, they're an idolater that has, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ, and God. You know firsthand that these people have no inheritance in the kingdom. The NLT uh, says this, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. If you are greedy, you worship this world, the things in this world. Right? That, that's a strong statement that I think people forget. Right? Uh, it's not about the gifts, it's about the giver. It's not about what he can give you, it's about who he is. And so yeah, things may come, but that doesn't mean that's what we want. Right? Prosperity gospel is crap. I was going to say that, sorry, I know that's probably going to offend some of you guys, but it is. Prosperity gospel is hogwash, it's terrible, it's not Christian. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The NLT, once again, verse 6 says, Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. Saying, don't be fooled by the people that say, you know, it's not a big deal to want things in this world. It's not a big deal, okay? It's not really a big deal. You can have the jet. You can have the money. You can have the things of this world and still serve God. You can, but that's not what it's about. And even if you do... Christ told us that it was easier for, the ca- for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. We should not, and you can ask some Christians that are rich, it is more of a curse to be rich than it is a blessing. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins of being a greedy person. For the anger of God will fall on all of those who disobey him. Verse 7, therefore do not become partners. Back to the ESV version. Do not become partners with them. I'm not a partner with the sexually immoral. I'm not a partner with those who are greedy for the things of this world. They're not my partners. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. How powerful. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Once again, this mental capacity, discernment, biblical understanding, biblical literacy, to understand the word of God, to meditate it on your mind, and to be able to discern, this would be pleasing to my God. That's good. Amen. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. This is strong. There are many Christians who have fallen away that I think if they would have exposed their sins, exposed their issues, exposed their problems a lot sooner, maybe they could have been redeemed. I don't know. But we are to take no joy in exposing things, but we have to expose unfruitful works of darkness. That's why I tell the teenagers all the time, like, I'm not going to judge you if you struggle with pornography. I'm not going to look down on you. I'm not going to condemn you. But the worst thing you could do is just hide it. But the reality is pornography is the easiest thing on earth to hide. Right? And so we have to expose it. For it is shameful even to speak of things that these do these people do in secret. What do we do in secret? Can we take it up here on the platform and tell everyone what we do in secret? Or would it be pretty shameful? Okay? Christian living, we should be able to get up here and say, here's what I do in secret. I don't want my left hand to know what my right hand's doing, but you know what? In the secret place, I'm actually doing all right. But let's be honest, most of us would get up here and say, in the secret place, I'm getting into some sin. In the secret place, I curse a lot. In the secret place, I make some really crude jokes. In the secret place, I look at Instagram accounts I shouldn't look at. In the secret place, I get into websites I shouldn't look at. In the secret place, at my job, right? What do we do, right? We talk about character is what we do when no one's looking. And he says, it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What is the promise to those that expose their darkness into light? This isn't a reference to an Old Testament thing. So they believe this was a common known hymn in Ephesus, is the belief. This was was a uh, doxology of worship. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. When you have secret things in your life, sins in your life, and you expose them. I'm not saying you expose them to everyone and anyone. Don't, don't go expose them to, to Elijah, right? I'm really not saying that. I'm saying be careful, but do expose them. Say, hey, my wife, here's what I'm going through. My husband, here's what I'm going through. My dad, here's what I'm going through. My friend, maybe a friend group. I don't care what it is. Just saying, I'm exposing this to Christ. I'm exposing this to some people to keep me accountable because it says, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. You don't want things in the dark because when they're in the dark, you're in the dark. And when you're in the dark, you don't have Christ shining upon you. This isn't to try to get too religious or legalistic, but I'm saying we want to kill sin. Uh, mortification of sin, Romans 7, Romans 6, Romans 8, all of it. We look at it and it says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. (laughs) We want to get rid of sin. And he places a strong emphasis on we are to walk in love. And what's funny is right after he gets into we are to walk in love as Christ loved us, he goes right into sexual immorality and greed. If you're sexually immoral, that's not loving. If you're greedy, that's not loving. If you covet, that's not loving. Yet, most people, that's what they want. That's what they do. That's what they're like. We're not to look like that. We're not to act like that. We're not to talk like that. 
that's what I have for you guys today. We're, we're Romans, 5, uh, Romans 5, 1 through 14. Next week, we're not going to get into the marriage part, probably. Um, so sorry, kiddos. Probably one more week for that. And then we'll get into the marriage portion. Uh, so with saying that, I'm going to close us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to open the Word of God and to let it encourage us, but also sometimes let it convict us and, and help us understand and realize that we are fallen men in need of saving. And we are, we are fallen by nature. And that's not to condemn us down and make us feel like we've got to escape from God, but rather rejoice in the truth that Christ has forgiven us of our sins and say, you know what, I have a secret sin. Sometimes I am a little immoral. Sometimes I have crude jokes or in, inappropriate behavior. Sometimes I don't look like a Christian. I know you're calling me to live this walk and, and walk it out like a Christian, and yet sometimes I don't. But yet that is why I'm grateful. That is why I rejoice in knowing that I am saved in knowing that the gospel of Christ is for those who place their faith in him and trust in him are saved. So we rejoice, we are grateful in knowing that the gospel has saved us from our flesh and thus we respond to the gospel by saying, I want nothing to do with my old way and I want everything to do with the way that Christ says, this is the better way for my children. So let us put out anything that is sexually immoral. Let us put out anything that is greedy. Let us, let us put out the desires of this world and say, that's not what we want. I don't care about that. I care about God. Yes, Lord. I'm going to be grateful and thankful to Him. I'm going to praise Him and honor Him and glorify Him in all that I do. For the glory of God alone is why I live. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. As always, thanks for checking us out. We hope to see you next week. God bless.